Welcome to the Little Wireless program, but it's not so little today. We're going to spend the entire hour looking at the worldwide war on WikiLeaks. And as you listen, Gladys and Polly's, I want you to remember that the founder of WikiLeaks, its editor-in-chief, Julian Assange, remains locked up in Belmarsh where there's been a significant outbreak of COVID. He's uh, awaiting the outcome of his extradition hearing brought by the American government to get him to the US to face 18 charges which could result in a sentence of 175 years and all for doing his job as a journalist by publishing documents that showed how governments around the world are abusing their power, but in particular, the government of the United States. The finding is due to be brought down on the 4th of January, although there will doubtlessly be ongoing legal processes. Sometimes it is easy to get distracted by the stories about Julian, his personality, his flaws, rather than reflecting what WikiLeaks as an organisation has achieved and how it has changed journalism across the globe and how it opened our eyes to the way that foreign policy operates and the huge disparity that exists between public statements and the reality on the ground during peace and, in particular, during war. So I was proud to write the introduction to a great collection of essays about WikiLeaks edited by Felicity Ruby and Peter Cronau that looks at how WikiLeaks has affected journalism and foreign policy in Australia and across the globe. The book is called A Secret Australia and it's published by Monash University Publishing. Now we're going to discuss many things over the hour but first up we're going to look at how WikiLeaks has changed journalism with a few of the highly credentialed contributors to the book. First of all, I'm pleased to welcome one of the editors, uh, Peter Crono. Peter has been an investigative journalist for decades and uh, made many a fine Four Corners program. Also here in the studio, and I should point out that I've actually got guests in the studio, first time it's happened for months. Also here, Benedetta Bravini. Benedetta is a journalist, reformer, social lecturer in political economy of communications at the University of Sydney. And it's great to have online from Melbourne an old friend of the program and of Julian's, Sulet Dreyfus. Sulet is a technology writer and researcher in online privacy, cybersecurity and whistleblowing and uh, wrote a book on hacking with Julian Assange. Benedetta, first to you, Can let's go back to 2010 and give the, the listener a quick reminder of some of the major WikiLeaks downloads at that time including, of course, the collateral damage video. Okay, of course, uh, back then, when we started seeing um, the incredible impact of, uh, you know, these war crimes that were perpetrated um, by American soldiers, like we couldn't really believe our eyes, right? And um, I mean, the major, the major leak that was uh, uh, revealed through the, the famous collateral murder video brought WikiLeaks really to uh, become a sort of a global, global platform for disclosure. Um, what we saw back then and the, the cruelty also of that operation and also um, the way in which uh, also Reuters journalists um, got highly um, well impacted and you know and the, and the cruelty that was perpetrated was something that honestly we, we couldn't expect and was really unprecedented for, for all of us as witnesses. Um, what I have to say is that um, um, Already back then, there was a major um, question about uh, the impact of a dead, ed the editing that was taking place back then. And actually, suddenly, major commentators start saying, okay, I mean, was this actually in the public interest or was this endangering, for example, um, you know, the, the people on the ground? Because this was already one of the major questions that was asked um, back then. Um, and in fact, I mean, I know pretty well, and this is what was documented back then also in our books beyond WikiLeaks, that there was a, a, major, a major intervention also by WikiLeaks and they spent 
um, hours in the editing room trying to make sure that no harm was done at the time of this editing. And I, I, I really care a lot about discussing this because I think that this has become one of the major focus, focal points. Philip. Thank you, Benedetta. Let's just remind the viewer, the listener, that uh, we had the the Afghan war diaries, the Iraqi war files, and finally what came to be known as Cablegate and uh, WikiLeaks. Uh, Julian goes into the Ecuadorian embassy, I think, in 2012 to avoid extradition. So let tell us briefly about some of the major innovations. Uh, he's brought to journalism, first of all, the digital Dropbox. Yeah, so I think, you know, when you're the first, when you're the innovator, uh, it's really easy to um, be forgotten when other people copycat you all over the world. And and WikiLeaks uh, and Julian Assange uh, are innovators. So, you know, the, the major changes that they have brought, not just to journalism, but to fighting corruption, include um, the wide, wider spread use, really the introduction of the anonymous, secure digital Dropbox. So in this um, adaptation of technology, it takes a combination of Dropbox that you and I might use for just sharing a document with each other, adds um, encryption and anonymizing technologies, two different technologies with that, to make sure that the pipeline into it both hides the identity of the person inserting the document, uh, as well as provides security from their computer to the computer where the Dropbox is so that no one can intercept it. And, uh, and when you put all those things together, you create a special, a new form of protection for sources giving information to journalists in the public interest. We should point out that more than <laughs> 70 variations of the WikiLeaks model are now operating, not only used by journalists but by anti-corruption organisations, well, in countries like Italy and Mexico. And corporates are also using secure drop boxes, are they not? That's right. So, you know, we've seen that these secure digital drop boxes are now being used in something like at least 29 countries. Uh, it's used by anti-corruption authorities in Spain, as well as Italy and, uh, and in other countries as well. Uh, and, and it's become very important because, as we've seen, the risk with modern day technology is it leaves little digital breadcrumbs. Wherever you go, it's much easier to track down the whistleblower. These boxes provide a defense for that. And if the journalist or the fraud or the crime investigator doesn't know the identity of the source, they can never accidentally or intentionally be forced to reveal them. And that means that the source won't have retaliation against them. That benefits all of us because it means that a source, someone who's seen serious wrongdoing or illegality will actually be braver about stepping forward and telling us about it. So, Lloyd, what about verification journalism? Now, this is quite interesting. So, in many ways, uh, what WikiLeaks did is it mainstreamed the use of data journalism, um, and that's not just analysing a data set that comes to you to try and say, well, what does the data show us as a story, as a trend, as an anomaly? Uh, but it's also about actually providing the full data set as a link from the story. And the importance of that is that it allows us to verify what we're being told by the journalist is true. Now, that's especially important, ironically, in today's world, where we are inundated with reports online, you know, that have misinformation, false information, uh, and, and we want to know is the truth. Well, having that original data set gives us that verification, and WikiLeaks largely popularize that. Um, and, and that was a profound change in the nature of journalism, but also how much we have to trust the media publication. Now, let's deal with global <laughs> collaborative journalism, Sulet. <laughs> so, um, again, another WikiLeaks innovation, uh, and that has been to actually publish a complex large story with a, data, with a large data set across many media partnerships all at once. So in the case of publishing the U.S. State Department cables that had to be redacted, but also stories had to be written that were localized about the importance of a cable in Haiti, for example. Um, they actually formed a, a publisher 
partnerships with media outlets of at least 89 media outlets in different countries around the world. Sometimes there were, in fact, two publications in the same country. So, for example, in Italy, La Repubblica and L'Espresso. Uh, and, and they coordinated between them, um, as well as across uh, not-for-profit publishers. And with this, they, the world benefited from it because you've got the local knowledge of the journalists who understand the particular issue being dealt with, for example, in the cable, but you've got the international knowledge of WikiLeaks, the publisher, giving context to it. Um, this model that WikiLeaks uh, created at scale uh, is, is exceptionally prescient. We've seen journalism very much um, destroyed in its traditional format uh, in a way that um, has meant that we don't have the economic uh, legs supporting it, the advertising, as much of the advertising has gone to Google or Facebook or whatever. <clears throat> and so how can you actually make sure that we, the public, still get good news stories? Well, they've got to work together. They've got to work collaboratively. And you've got to do it internationally in order to do that. Peter, you won't want to come in at this point. Look, I think the the collaboration of uh, of journalists is is one of the best things we've got going for us because it unites the journalists in the same struggle. So many, so often, journalists feel they're on their own. They're pumping out a story, and the next day after it goes to air, they don't hear another thing. So, the idea of collaboration across platforms, using material that is extraordinarily well sourced, such as WikiLeaks, is undeniably well sourced, um, is is such an improvement in the ability to do journalism. The ABC Dropbox is fun. It is up and running, yes, at the moment. I think it's been going for about a year now. Um, you know, in other places they've had it up for, you know, five years or so, but the ABC's got it and it's working. You know, things are coming in. You think, oddly enough, that Australia Post is still quite secure. Look, I have to say that um, anything that is digital has means of being hacked or intercepted. Even Australia Post uh, can be intercepted. It's quite easy now because a lot of the addresses and the, and the work of the exchanges are electronic. So that's not perfect. But, um, you know, maybe a chalk mark on a post in a park is about uh, what we're back to. But, um, but I think journalists need to be able to give their sources and whistleblowers secure means of communication. The, the secure Dropbox does that, but also apps on their phones such as uh, Signal. Yeah, explain that to me. Well... Some, something like Signal um, is no doubt a target of the NSA and Australia's ASD because they want to find nefarious people. However, what it is, it's encryption at both ends. And the only way it can be intercepted is by somebody putting a bug on your phone. OK. Now, Peter, there's been criticism of the Australian media that they've not been supportive enough of Julian, if at all. Do you think the pursuit of Oakes and Sam Clark and the raids on the ABC and Annika Smithers from News Corp has changed that? Look, with, without a doubt, um, whilst those raids were a very serious, concerning step against Australian journalism, it also united thousands of journalists across the country, including News Limited and the ABC and others gathered together to make statements about the right to know and, and ran a campaign, spoke to Parliament. I think it's done probably uh, something that all sorts, years of uh, persuasive books like ours, um, it was done in a minute uh, by having News Limited and the ABC raided within two days of each other. And it, it just showed that um, just like uh, just, just like Julian has been targeted, so too can other journalists. And now journalists in Australia are targeted. And, and in fact, one was referred for charges to the DPP. Benedict, were you shocked when you... <coughs> arrived in Australia at the lack of support Julian was getting from government and media? I was certainly shocked. And I have to say, Philip, that um, having lived uh, a bit all around the world, I was uh, expecting Australia to consider Assange as one of their heroes, precisely like uh, someone like uh, Robert Mann, an emeritus professor of um, politics at the University of Sydney, was uh, Melbourne, was actually claiming back um, around 2009 about the significance of the two most important Australians in the world, R Rupert Murdoch and then Assange. But then he didn't really... I made the same point in my introductory essay. Fantastic. Australia has produced the two most powerful media figures 
on the planet. Absolutely. And I think that the, I was coming to Australia, to Australia with this idea in mind that for sure, because he challenged power, because he helped really establishing um, this incredible set of uh, releases and disclosure. And there is another point that actually hasn't emerged yet in this conversation, that is always we tend to really focus on the way in which WikiLeaks has changed journalism, but also in terms of structural changes to the media systems, global media systems, WikiLeaks have done so much, and I think we should credit it for. And the major question, Philip, is like considering the incredibly incredible concentration of global media systems around the world. So as a platform of disclosure, WikiLeaks really brought new voices, brought refreshing sources, brought a sort of an archive that is there online forever for us to check also as citizens. And um, let me tell you another thing that I've been really um, reflecting upon in the last uh, 10 years of WikiLeaks. Um, I think he also brought renewed attention in general to digital literacy. And digital literacy is really key to confront fake news, hoaxes, post-truth, and exactly what we are witnessing now. I don't know if you remember, uh, Philip, Assange was um, actually described by the New York Times as being someone that uh, was a numbed man because he was carrying his phone everywhere between rooms. He was changing his SIM cards all the time. He was swapping it between a telephone and another. And isn't it interesting that he was doing that almost 15 years ago? And now finally we know that we're living under surveillance capitalism. Now, Peter, I think it's important to let Australians know that Julian has portrayed very differently in Europe, isn't he? He's, uh, he's taken much more seriously. Well, for some reason we... Is it the tall poppy syndrome in Australia? You know, I think it's a far more serious thing that has knocked off uh, Julian's reputation in Australia and, that, and that's that there was a war on WikiLeaks. There was a, a, an organised propaganda campaign I mean, the US Defence Department's kicked it off and other agencies jumped in to to destroy the reputation of WikiLeaks and destroy the reputation of people involved in it. So I, I think that worked here in Australia. The narrative got across and a lot of people in certain unnamed publications published uh, negative stories about about him. Well, so that, that's the, the, the extraordinary thing is that many of the organisations that benefited from WikiLeaks have also attacked him. Uh, I mean, I think it's a sad irony that, um, you know, major media outlets turned around and attacked uh, WikiLeaks instead of recognising it for the new style media outlet that it is, rather than being old media, um, it tried to redefine WikiLeaks as being simply a source or a whistleblowing website. It's not. It's a publisher. And uh, it's a publisher the way that newspapers are publishers, online publishers. Uh, and uh, so I think that was a thing. But but a lot of what went on there was actually professional jealousy. And I, I'm sorry to see that. I think that the, um, the latter-day leaders of a number of these publications have come out speaking against uh, Julian Assange's extradition to the United States on the basis that it's a terribly dangerous precedent for journalism um, because you don't want the U.S. to simply throw journalists in jail or extradite them and throw them in jail at will because they say things that the government doesn't like. Um, and they've realized that it would be a big trouble for them if this, this goes ahead. There had to be a change of guard over the past seven years at these some of these institutions for them to come round to that way of thinking. And I think it's only been these traditional media outlets, places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, it's only been when they have seen a serious degradation of their own revenue sources from the online platforms, the Facebooks, the Googles taking their ads, that they've realized, actually, we, you know, we need to not see the WikiLeaks of the world as our enemy. They're not the ones who are going to take us down. Peter, we're meeting together at the time of the Brereton Report's impact, which is quite colossal. What benefits are the WikiLeaks Afghan files today? What they did initially was to show that there was another side to war that we weren't hearing about, and, um, and that was that the civilian death toll was massively higher than anyone had ever admitted. Uh, and, and it was that um, 
uh, responsibility for the... I mean, basically, the chaos of war was being covered up. It was being presented in a nice way to us. I mean, the Australian Defence Force has a public affairs unit that does that and, and took Australian journalists on visits to carpentry workshops in remote Afghan villages. And, and however, WikiLeaks... Uh, leaked a, a particular document, or sorry, ran a, a leaked document, um, which quoted Kevin Rudd saying he was terrified by what was happening in Afghanistan. At the very same time, Defence Public Relations is saying things are going well. We're helping girls go to school. We're training young boys how to use hammers and saws. And 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 I saw that stuff. I mean, I worked on programs where we were getting footage showing that sort of stuff. When the reality behind it was was much starker. We we heard rumours about. Uh, war crimes being conducted by Australians, about nasty events being being done, but finding a whistleblower, finding someone to talk about it beyond the rumour, I mean, enormously difficult. But nonetheless, nonetheless, everyone knew from the WikiLeaks uh, reports that there was another side to war we were not hearing about. Benedetta, media concentration's an important factor, isn't it? Oh, certainly. Actually, media concentration is um, um, one of the crucial pillars for democracy. And uh, actually, if we have too much of it, democracy cannot really function. So um, the interesting thing is that whenever we talk about media concentration, and I see this happening, but I also saw this and I witnessed this in the UK when I took part to the proceedings of the Leveson inquiry um, by participating in the work that the Coalition for Media Reform, that was a, you know, a coalition of um, journalists and academics and civil society organisations um, trying to propose reforms for these major issues that we faced. Let's remember that back then we had the phone hacking scandal that saw the Murdoch empire really being uh, um, like challenged back then. And, and you know, um, like very often I get asked this question, how do we solve, how do we actually manage to sort out our democracy in light of this level of concentration? Well, I think that WikiLeaks was uh, certainly an interesting platform to try to challenge also this incredible level of concentration. So like having new sources and having new platforms for disclosure was and indeed offered the solution. But it's not only that. So if we have more time and we to discuss this um, later. Um... Unfortunately, we <laughs> can't do that, but uh, because Part two of the program is rapidly approaching. But, Sulet, you've known Julian for a very long time, longer than any of us. He uh, was trying to make governments more transparent, but in a way, the reverse has happened. I think to some degree it's true, um, to the extent that, you know, his, he grew up in small-town Queensland. Uh, he saw firsthand the impact of the Bielke-Peterson era. Um, don't you worry about that. Cash and brown paper bags going to state ministers um, as bribes. And he understood that um, transparency really was the best di disinfectant. Um, the problem is that in creating this incredibly innovative application of technology to journalism, it was so impactful that uh, those who were the wrongdoers in government, those with corporate, um, you know, corruption ties, uh, have had to amp up their ability to do spin and lies. And, and that's exactly what they've done. They've sort of raised it to a new level. Um, and so to that extent, the, the, the swing back um, has been quite uh, severe. But I'm a big believer in data analysis and critical thinking. If you have the data and you have um, media outlets like WikiLeaks with enough resources and enough protection legally to do the analysis and to, to broadcast it, and we can teach our population in schools and through listening to shows like yours, Philip, um, critical thinking, then we have all the right ingredients to turn this around. Peter, we've seen an immense increase in pressure on journalists, haven't we? Yeah, look, we, we have, Philip, um, the ability to hunt journalists has become much easier for authorities because... Uh, everywhere, everywhere we go, we make an electronic 
footprint and and it's almost impossible to escape that so unless the government unless a government is absolutely trustworthy unless a government has proper oversight by the inspector general of intelligence and security unless those things are working perfectly there are chances where overreach can occur and that's already happened i think um, there's been admissions that some of the um that some of the data, metadata uses have been, uh, you know, unapproved, that signatures from various um, approving magistrates haven't been quite on, spot on. And, and what it means is that journalists are, are, have a constant fear. Are they destroying someone's life by phoning them? Uh, when you phone a public servant, uh, uh, should you say, have you got enough super before this call? Will, will, is your relationship strong enough before we have this conversation? Because... I've had it happen to me, a, a public servant I rang, out of the blue, a not too controversial topic, but uh, boy, was he pounced on because someone looked up his phone records and knew it was a journalist. So now I take the most extraordinary measures to not use normal telephone systems because of that, that problem. And, and to use encrypted... I, I wondered why you had the pigeons with you, so that's... Look, I, I, I've always enjoyed the company of pigeons. They're fluffy little fellows and, um, you know, w w when you're there fighting for justice and human rights and <laughs> the world, you need a fluffy uh, a companion. <laughs> Benedetto, how are you feeling about the future of investigative journalism and the capacity for media to report on national security issues here? Well, certainly, as also Sulet mentioned, um, we saw a sort of a counter, um, counter action as a result of the leaks. And we saw actually metadata laws being adopted radically, especially within the Five Eye um, coalition, if I, if I may, or alliance. And, uh, and so this is certainly not a, a, a positive effect. And I totally acknowledge that. But um, I really think that actually what is relevant is that technology alone can never, you know, save journalism. What we need is actually more jobs for journalists. We need more funding for public interest journalists. We need regulation that will help achieving this. And whenever we, as media reformers, mention regulation, we get told, oh, we are intervening. But we wouldn't be here at the ABC if it wasn't for media regulation um, can be in the public interest and can really foster public interest journalism and investigative reporting. So I'm, I'm positive as long as we recognise this, that we need to intervene. And now with inquiry, you have an opportunity, Philip. We're going to wind up the first part of the programme now. Coming up soon, what we learn about uh, foreign policy from WikiLeaks, but now it's time to thank my three guests, Sulet Dreyfus, technology writer and researcher in online privacy, cybersecurity and whistleblowing. And uh, as you know, Sulet has written a book on hacking with Julian Assange. Bernadetta Bravini, journalist, reformer and senior lecturer in political economy of communication. Up the road at the University of Sydney and sitting opposite me and it's Great to see you, Peter. Peter Crono, investigative journalist extraordinaire. Uh, and as I said, he's been a producer on ABC's Four Corners for years and decades. And he's a co-editor of A Secret Australia with Felicity Ruby. LNL on Radio National. <laughs> beloved listeners, when we look at the legacy of the WikiLeaks papers, we find a lot of those documents are still valuable to understanding conflicts, conflicts that continue today in Afghanistan in particular, and also in Iran. We learnt a lot about how both Australia and other countries around the world engage in foreign policy, and thanks to Cablegate particularly, how the US engages with the world. To discuss some of the reverberations that resulted from the publication of the Afghan War Diaries and the US diplomatic cables, I'm delighted to welcome a few more guests to the program who've contributed an essay to the collection in A Secret Australia. Here, alive and kicking in the studio, we have independent journalist, filmmaker and troublemaker Anthony Lowenstein. Online from Melbourne, Clinton Fernandes, Professor of International Relations at UNSW in Canberra, 
And in our Bega studio, it's the first time I've ever connected to Bega, we have Scott London, former Senator for the Australian Greens in Canberra, where, of course, he campaigned for the rights of WikiLeaks to publish without fear of reprisal. And welcome to, to Felicity Ruby, co-editor of A Secret Australia and a researcher on surveillance and democracy at the University of Sydney. Anthony, there were thousands of diplomatic cables, US cables, released by WikiLeaks. What do we learn about them, about the relationship between Australia and the US? It showed that we were and are subservient. It showed that it didn't actually make a big difference who's in charge in Canberra, whether it's Liberal or Labor. It showed that in relation to a number of stories, not least about Afghanistan, about Israel-Palestine and PNG. And the reason I think this is important is many people who are critical of Australian foreign policy would regularly say that, yes, there's not exactly the same between the Liberal Party and Labor. On many key foreign affairs issues, there's virtually no difference. Tell me about the, uh, the so-called protected sources. So the protected sources essentially said that there are a number of politicians who would regularly schmooze and be schmoozed by the US Embassy in Canberra. It talked to the time particularly about people like Mark Arbib, who was then a senior Labor Party person who left politics and then went on to work for Crown Casino, Jamie Packer. And essentially what I was saying about him was a few things. One, that he reassured his American backers that he supported the war on terrorism in general, that's a direct quote, and the Iraq war in 2003. And of course, people might wonder, why does it matter what a seemingly random Labor politician says about the US war on terror? It matters because of access and because of power and the sense that if you are seen to be pleasing your American masters, so to speak. It doesn't mean he's getting money from the US. It means that the way that power works in Australia is that you cannot upset certain places of power. That's mostly American and Israeli. And if you do so, almost guaranteed you will not rise to positions of power. I think the most compelling thing for me was that uh, here we are with an image of ourselves as rebellious and anti-authoritarian and we're, it's bollocks. we're forelock tuggers. Clinton, what did you learn in particular about how Australia is valued by America? We only represented, I think, 1% of the cables. Uh, yes, well, we are, of course, a uh, much smaller country than the United States and less important to the United States than other countries uh, in more frontline areas like the Middle East. But I think I would phrase it differently to what Anthony did. Um, we have made an independent decision to dovetail within the broader strategy of the United States. It is not as though we are an oppressed country that is somehow uh, being dictated to by the United States any more than we were an oppressed country being dictated to by the British Empire. We have made an independent decision uh, to dovetail our strategy and fit into and show relevance to uh, the United States. One of and the things that I was interested in, uh, Clinton, was the what we learnt about the negotiations over intellectual property, in particular about pharmaceuticals, significant given that we face the challenges of providing vaccines for COVID. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, the, uh, the core of American uh, commerce is based now in intellectual property. To take one example, at the time that the cables were leaked, uh, the Apple Corporation was making far more from uh, its branding and its, its intellectual property than were the people in Taiwan or China that were actually manufacturing uh, those uh, Apple devices. And when it comes to, to pharmaceuticals, uh, the Minister of Science at the time was Kim Carr. Uh, there was a proposal to manufacture, manufacture generic pharmaceuticals. But his hands were tied because of the various free trade agreements and other uh, arrangements we'd had with the United States. And the U.S. Embassy uh, was very keen to ensure uh, that we respected intellectual property rights. Uh, they had something to say about our pharmaceutical benefit scheme, and it was very revealing to see what the American embassy thought of it. They said that our healthcare uh, and our, our PBS uh, uh, achieves some of the best outcomes of the OECD and uh, it's very popular with the public and medical practitioners, but it's not popular with pharmaceutical companies who complain about PBS's squeezing costs at their expense. Let's bring Scott in now. When you were in Parliament, you must have been shocked by the lack of support for Assange and WikiLeaks, Scott. 
Well, the shock wore off pretty quickly because it didn't seem to matter who the prime minister was or the foreign minister, apart from a couple of examples at the margins, that uh, you couldn't get them to raise a finger to protect the people who were doing the truth-telling. So immediately after the collateral murder video and then the Iraq and the Afghanistan war logs were disclosed, those disclosures revealed massive crimes, war crimes, and yet nobody was being prosecuted. The only people who were who were being destroyed were those who were telling the truth and those who were reporting on it. Scott, I was particularly chagrined by the Gillard statement that the actions of WikiLeaks were illegal. Which was immediately contradicted by no less than the Australian Federal Police. And it was, it was rhetorical. It's a way of criminalising journalism that has continued from that time. I think she made that statement in about 2011. Until today, we've got the US Secretary of State who is insisting that WikiLeaks is a, is a hostile non-state intelligence actor. And I think what, what kind of binds the threads of this conversation together is that the US with Australia as an accomplice is trying to redefine journalism to actually mean espionage. That's the, that's the principle that they've tried to run in the extradition hearings in London. Let's look, let's look at the dramatic contrast between the lack of interest or energy in looking after Julian and the behind-the-scenes negotiations that got uh, Kylie Moore-Gilbert released. I think it's a very interesting example, um, and there, there are many, but that's one very recent one. Now, we could, we could critique how long that took or the, you know, the, the techniques of backroom diplomacy or the deals that, that have to be done. But it's clear that that wasn't treated as a consular matter, that that was treated as a very serious uh, issue and threat to, to her safety. And so they pulled out all stops and they eventually they've, they secured her freedom as they did for Peter Greston, as they've done for others before. Whereas with Julian, who hasn't been arrested in Iran or Egypt, he's, he's being prosecuted by the United States government, they insist on treating it as though it's a consular issue, as though the guy's lost his passport or something. And it's, it's unconscionable, but it, it's, it's rhetorically how they make it look as though they've, they've done something for him. Back to you, Anthony. What did the publication of the war diaries reveal about our concerns about the war in Afghanistan? This in some ways is the most revealing, um, Philip, because it also shows how relevant it is today. So we talked a little bit about Kevin Rudd, who was then Prime Minister. And one of the things he was saying privately to the US was that the future of the country, quote, scared the hell out of him. Despite his government, our government, sending more police instead of troops to the war-torn country. And what he said very interestingly was that he described the French and German fight against the Taliban as, quote, organising folk dancing festivals. Now, obviously, he was being maybe rather, in his view, funny. But the truth is what this shows is that there has been a profound disconnect. This is the longest war in modern history. Australia still is in that war in um, uh, non-troop form. The US is obviously still there. The war logs also showed massive, as Scott rightly said, human rights abuses, killings, extrajudicial killings, etc. And one of the things that I think has still not been adequately revealed and discussed to this day, which WikiLeaks touches on, the only way the US and our allies essentially were allowed to continue in that country for 20 years is partnering with the worst elements of that country, namely warlords and other kind of figures. And Australia in Uruzgan province was directly not just implicated, but was proud of the fact that they were working with warlords in Uruzgan. And having spent time there in the last 10 years in Afghanistan, one of the things that is so sad and tragic, not least because of the current Brereton report about Afghan war crimes, is that it's yet it is just the tip of the iceberg meaning that I'm not saying I have evidence of further killings. What I mean is that the legacy of Australia in Afghanistan is by definition one of failure. And I would argue that if another, God forbid, 9-11 happens in the US, Australia has learned literally, when I say Australia, the Australian government, literally nothing from the last 20 years and we would join any US force in some other foreign nation. That's what's so tragic. And WikiLeaks documents revealed not just Australian duplicity on the war. And I might add, Rudd has not been asked these questions. Since the Brereton report came out, he's been asked about how he feels about Australia's image around the world rather than actually being asked, well, what were you actually saying practically about the war privately to your US handlers, essentially, compared to what you actually were doing 
in public policy. That, to me, is a really disturbing element. Clinton, I would like you to have a look at that disconnect between rhetoric and reality in Afghanistan. Uh, Well, the objective, the real objective of our presence in Afghanistan and in Iraq was to show relevance to the United States. It wasn't uh, actually to uh, stabilize. That was the tactical objective. But what happened in, in Kabul or indeed in Baghdad is essentially irrelevant. What matters is that in the Australian area of operations, visiting American politicians should come and look and approve the work we are doing. And in that respect, uh, we met our war objectives. I mean, it's the United States that lost the war in Iraq. Australia won that war because our real objective was to demonstrate uh, relevance uh, to the United States and to uphold uh, the umbrella of world order in our region. Clinton, does our knowledge from the cables on Iran from, well, 10 years ago still provide context to our understanding of how the US is dealing with Iran today? Yes, there is a strong continuity uh, in what the cables revealed then and uh, continuing till today. The first core thing that comes out of the cables is that Iran's behavior is fundamentally based on deterrence. I'm not even talking about my own opinion. This is the opinion of the Director General of the Office of National Assessments. He says that uh, Iran's nuclear program falls within the paradigm of the laws of deterrence. It is a mistake to think of Iran as a rogue state. I mean, what they're actually trying to do uh, is develop enough of a deterrent to slow down an invasion in order to buy time for negotiations. That's their real objective. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, there is no question that this is the most sober analysis of Australia's own intelligence uh, analysts, very different to the more ideological views of some American analysts that were revealed in the cables. Just to add to what you're saying, Clinton, is that there's another cable that shows that Rudd, who was, as I said, Prime Minister at the time, could be open to, quote, taking non-diplomatic means to destroy Iran's nuclear facilities. That's a scene taken by Israel. And that is so relevant to this day because as we see the end of the Trump administration moving into Biden from January next year, there is still serious, serious concerns that US or Israel or some other actor will take military means against Iran. And the idea that you would have an Australian prime minister saying that he'd be open to essentially the bombing or the some other method of destroying a a, a supposed nuclear facility in Iran is highly worrying. And one just final point on that, Philip, is that Through the cables in relation to Australia, this shows complete deference to anything Israel wants. That's such an important point that really gets talked about in Australia. You've been very patient, Felicity. Now come in. You've worked at the UN. What did we learn about how Australia represents itself at the United Nations compared to the reality? Well, um, Australia is perceived by many countries as um, a very close ally to the United States, which we are, but the cables and other revelations have shown Australia's role in, for example, watering down treaties such as the Cluster Munitions Treaty on behalf of the Americans, the kind of division of labour that takes place. Um, So we've seen... um, that has a very negative effect on um, this one particular treaty, the Cluster Munitions Treaty, uh, which was trying to ban a really horrendous weapon that continues to kill after long after it's dropped. Um, and Australia you know, inserted language in there to ensure that countries that were working with the United States, um, countries that were not states parties to the treaty, were able to deploy and transport and, and house those weapons. So that's just one example that gives a little bit of insight into uh, when the Americans are not in the room, um, their friends are. Felicity, have the WikiLeaks cables changed the way foreign policy and diplomacy is being done? I think it's given insight into the extent to which um, good faith negotiations are affected and infected by surveillance. The Kaleri example is another. Um, I think that... um, We've seen um, countries respond with countermeasures um, to protect their communications. This is the crackdown on, on whistleblowers. Yeah, well, there's certainly been a crackdown on Assange and WikiLeaks, but also that's increasingly been seen as as repressive and undermining of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And there has been crackdowns on whistleblowers, but they keep coming forward. Uh, Wrongdoing keeps being 
seen and and reformed with sunlight. Um, and that reform is only possible if we know what's going on. And so um, international treaty negotiations and the um, privacy of communications are improved when people know what's going on. Do you think there's been a hint of a move towards acting more diplomatically? Look, power's been put on notice that technology isn't just useful for surveilling the public, that the public can indeed, you know, surveil power too. And that's probably shifted culture and practice. Um, it's impossible to prove what hasn't happened and it's difficult to document anything really in secret um, organisations or in indeed in, in diplomatic encounters. But um, the idea that things that are written down and things that are recorded can become public, I think will um, make uh, diplomacy more diplomatic and uh, international relations um, more careful about how they go about business. Anthony, has it actually had an influence on foreign policy? It's an interesting question. It's one I think about a lot. I think in the last 10 years on a lot of issues that I've written about, um, foreign policy and, and governments essentially have acted just as brutally as before. I think what it has done, though, is two things. One, to make many governments far more careful about what will what may or may not get leaked. I mean, Edward Snowden's revelations a few years after these cables in 2013 were frankly equally as significant because they showed that essentially, and again, Australia's role in this is vital, that it showed in some ways that we have a complete situation where surveillance is not just ubiquitous, that everyone is being surveilled, yes, to different degrees. So to me, what foreign policy is slightly change in the last 10 years is the public is more aware of it. What is required is politicians to be far more open to changing those policies. Clinton, I don't think you entirely agree with Anthony. Well, I, I believe that uh, the cables have made a difference in the sense that they have uh, shed light on matters that were previously unknown. They have confirmed certain things that we already suspected, uh, and they have definitely provided uh, insights. It's the interpretation, I think, we put on these things um, that, that we probably defer. I, I don't, for instance, believe um, that, uh, you know, we are dictated to, uh, to by, say, Israel, but rather Israel, like us, upholds the umbrella of American power in its region. And so we have to make compromises, or at least our leaders believe we have to make compromises, um, and subordinate, you know, in much the same way we subordinate uh, our foreign policy to the United States' wishes. Uh, but it's not—it's—it's it's an independent decision. It's—it's uh, it's a deliberate choice that we've made. We are not an exploited colony of the United States. Yeah. If I could rephrase my core proposition, it's that the American objective, uh, which we support, is a pro-U.S. political order that translates into a permissive environment for international financial institutions and business corporations. Now, we benefit, or at least our corporations benefit from that, but of course the lion's share of the benefit comes from the United States. But that is what is actually meant by a rules-based international order. It is a pro-American political order that we share in and we benefit from, and, and the aim is to provide a permissive environment for finance and business corporations. I'll tell you one thing that has radically changed, though, Philip, in the last 10 years is that any journalist who's serious about their work will use Wikileaks cables and all Wikileaks documents all the time. I mean, that to me is something that far too few journalists publicly want to acknowledge today. Anthony, you have some criticisms of Wikileaks. What are they? I have over the years. I mean, there's been times where there's certain uh, comments that Julian's may I didn't agree with. I mean, you know, he's human. He says things I don't agree with. There's elements of... But fundamentally, what's important, and I've been a supporter of Wikileaks since the beginning, beginning is that WikiLeaks itself as an organisation has released more vital cables and documents than any news organisation in my lifetime. The criticisms I've had, and I mentioned some of them in the book, are minor. That What's currently at stake here is a man's life. He faces life imprisonment, if not death, in a US prison. And I think what's also at stake here is what journalism is and what it should be, which namely is that it should have the right to publish. WikiLeaks is a news organisation and someone like me who's written and reported from places like Afghanistan, Honduras and Haiti and elsewhere regularly uses WikiLeaks documents to reveal the reality of a world. And what's so depressing to me is, although yes, there are some media organisations and journalists that acknowledge that, for sure there are, too few do. Because to me, the strength of WikiLeaks and Assange and what he's created, and I think which will be copied by others, 
is essentially, it's a threat of a good example. That's why he has to be destroyed by the US government. So they think. Felicity, a comment? The first time um, I had coffee with, with Peter, we came up with the idea of this book because we wanted these kinds of questions to be discussed. Um, what is Australia's role in the world? How are we perceived? And um, with whom are we working? And it's really to draw attention to um, the, the, the archive that is WikiLeaks and what you can find out about Australia um, that, we, that we put this book together. Scott, I ended the first part of this program by talking about unexpected consequences, unforeseen consequences of WikiLeaks. I would have thought that one of them has been the rise of repression that we've observed right here. I think there is, and I don't think we can put that down to WikiLeaks, although there were certainly the government, even when I was in, in my old job, you could see the government moving to try and prevent anything like that from ever happening again. Um, but I think it's part of a, of a larger pattern that's unfolding right around the world, the, the cycle that we're caught in of right-wing populism and kind of peculiarly Australian brand of Bogan authoritarianism, which has really got its teeth in now. But I also don't underestimate the, the counter-movement against that, uh, whether it be uh, the fact that, that, you know, many of us on our handsets have strongly encrypted messaging applications that don't cost a great deal of money because developers are building that, that people are, you know, there's a lot of pushback occurring. And part of, I guess, the purpose of this book is to put the information into as many hands as possible that we, ha we are under an obligation to use the information that was published, that people have put themselves into harm's way to put before us, not just to protect them and their right to publish and their right to tell the truth, but to protect ourselves collectively. Felicity, That's I had the great pleasure of uh, retweeting the glad tidings that the book is selling like the clappers. It's a, you know, it's a big hit on Amazon, of all things. But let me ask you this. What can the Gladys and Potties do to support Julian apart from buying it? They can um, support his legal defence through the Courage Foundation. Um, they can find out more about his case, which was, um, you know, extremely brilliantly put in for a month in um, England during September. Uh, we're waiting for a, a result of that. A judgment will come on the 4th of January. Um, inform yourself about his case. Uh, support him um, financially if, you, if you're able to, but also use what he has given so much of his freedom so, so that we can know, so that we can learn, think and change secret power. Use wikileaks.org. Be, be curious, put in a search term, find out something today. Thank you, Felicity Ruby, co-editor of A Secret Australia, published by Monash University Publishing, an extraordinary number of contributors. Felicity is a researcher on surveillance and democracy at the University of Sydney. Good to have you in the studio, Anthony Lowenstein, independent journalist, filmmaker and author. Thank you, Clinton Fernandes, Professor of International Relations at UNSW in Canberra. And thank you too. You, Scott Ludlam, former Senator and Communications Spokesperson for the Australian Greens.